Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the third of this year's series of Robin's lectures. Uh, and once again, uh, delighted to see members of the Robin's family uh, with us again uh, this evening. Uh, it's very good that this family connection um, with Lord Robbins is maintained through these lectures and indeed in many other ways. And some of you um, will have been here for the other two lectures, I can see, because there are a couple of fairly punch-drunk looking people here who clearly have sat through two poor previous ones. Um, uh, but uh, I haven't, but I have read the other two. Um, so I hope that I'm up to speed. And anyway, Dare's going to give us uh, a brief uh, resume of lectures one and two as he begins, so I won't do that. Um, delight, it's a great pleasure for me in particular to invite um, Adair back to the school. Uh, he and I have uh, followed each other around the British um, establishment for a number of years. Um, I joined McKinsey in 1982, where Adair already was, and we worked uh, together there. Then I left and eventually found myself at the CBI. And when I left the CBI to go to the Bank of England, they said, uh, who do you think should replace you? And I said, Adair. And they then spent three months doing a comprehensive search and appointed Adair. Um, <laughs> and uh, then um, uh, after I left the CBI, the CBI and the Bank of England went to the FSA, uh, it actually took a little while before Adair took over from, uh, from me at the FSA, but he has uh, done so. So we have shared um, drivers, secretaries, um, and things around uh, London uh, uh, for um, many years. Um, I won't go into any more detail there. I can see this could get out of hand. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a great pleasure to uh, be sitting alongside him on a platform. And also, particularly, um, I'm interested in the fact that he is in these lectures opening up a number of issues which um, have interested me as well for some time. I guess that's not surprising since we've done similar jobs. But I'm particularly, I think, it's good that he has come back uh, to the question of inequality and particularly the relationship between what's happening in financial markets and inequality. And I did choose to remind myself of one of the, um, in a way, uh, least successful things I've been engaged in. Actually, not, not least successful in the sense it wasn't a good report, but it was a report that didn't, um, I think, have as much influence as it might have done. But when I was at the CBI, I was deputy chairman of a report on distribution of income inequality and wealth. And uh, in fact, I noticed that the person who really wrote the report, John Hills, who's a professor here, is actually here uh, this evening. And in that report, uh, we said, I guess probably John held the pen for most of this, in, 19, in 1995, that uh, there hadn't been a universal trend towards greater inequality, um, but the pace at which inequality has increased in the UK was faster than in any other industrialised country, actually scrupulously, and this shows John's influence, uh, with the exception of New Zealand. Uh, most people would have removed that tiny qualification. Um, that it might be possible to justify growth in inequality on the grounds that the beneficial effects on growth would raise the living standards of the poorest, but there is no evidence that this has occurred in Britain, and that since the trend towards greater equality of incomes was reversed in the late 70s, this has not been, there has not been a faster rate of growth than in previous periods when the gap between rich and poor were smaller. And interestingly also, we pointed out that this was 
a, an interesting question in terms of politics as well, um, because if it were necessary for people to make sacrifices, we pointed out, and we were in a slightly difficult period at the time, people will only make such sacrifices if they believe they have a stake in society and the economy. And I think those uh, conclusions which we reached in 1995 and which uh, achieved rather little resonance um, in the political world uh, at the time, and certainly very little in the business and financial world, uh, are issues which are still a considerable uh, preoccupation. And so I'm particularly pleased that in these lectures, Adair has had inequality as a theme running through each of them. And we're going to hear a bit more about it this evening, along with a number of other things. So, Adair, it's you. Howard, thank you very much for that introduction, and uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening again uh, to those of you uh, who were here on Monday and Tuesday. Now, at the beginning of some episodes of long-running TV series, uh, you get those sort of highlights from previous episodes. And the purpose of these is to deal with the fact that some people will have missed a previous episode, or they fell asleep in it, or they went off to make a cup of tea, or they've simply forgotten uh, what happened in the previous episode which they were listening to. So I thought I'd use the equivalent this evening, and in a real sort of farsh flashback sense, uh, give you an idea of the story so far. My aim in these lectures has been to ask some questions about the objectives of economic activity and the means by which we address them. And I'm doing that in part because that was the structure of a famous essay by Lionel Robbins called An Essay on the Nature and Significance of Economic Science, which he wrote in 1932. And I began with observing that in the second half of the 20th century, there had been an increasingly dominant uh, political narrative, increasingly spoken about, spoken to across the political spectrum, which essentially said what's on this chart. That broadly speaking, the aim is to have free markets. They're good because they increase allocative efficiency, which produces growth, and growth is good for human happiness. And that free markets will tend to produce inequality, but that is justified because it helps produce growth and because that produces human happiness. And clearly that relates to the ideas uh, that Howard has just been talking about. And I called this point of view as to what we're trying to achieve and why things are justified the instrumental conventional wisdom. But I then said that even as this has become more dominant over the last 40 years, replacing previous elements of politics where conservatives might have talked about non-economic basis of conservatism, even as it has become more dominant, it has lost its logical base. It's lost it because there is compelling evidence from both time series data and cross-sectional data that beyond some level of income, there really is not a correlation between income per capita and happiness, well-being, welfare, whatever the word we use. And I think it is therefore reasonable to say uh, that the rich developed world in the last few decades has reached an important turning point in human history. The background to that turning point is what I think we can reasonably call the great transformation of the last 200 years, the transformation of human life from millennia in which the GDP per capita, as best we can measure it, had been about $400 uh, pretty much forever with no tendency to change, to this extraordinary process of economic and technological takeoff. 
And I argued that the early stages of this and the predominant stages of this are, are undoubtedly good for human contentment and therefore I'm very cl clearly not sharing some prelapsarian myth of happy people uh, poor back in the 18th century who have been uh, destroyed by prosperity. Uh, I believe that the fundamental processes of economic uh, growth over those two centuries have been beneficial for human well-being. And I think there are some countries of the world which are still halfway through that transition or at an early stage of that transition, China, much of Africa, for whom straightforward increases in growth as measured by standard uh, national income accounts are still positive for human welfare. But I think it is a reasonable inference that something has happened in rich developed countries and that beyond a certain point there is a disconnect where further increases in average earnings produce no necessary further increase in human welfare or contentment. So the next question is why has that occurred? And I argued that the reason for the breakdown is inherent in changes in the nature of both consumption and production which occur as we get increasingly richer. On the consumption side, I identified in particular three different ways in which as we get richer, we are devoting our expenditure, our consumption, to things where what really matters is our relative income, not our absolute income. We are devoting it to things like fashion goods, where we're basically trying to prove to each other that we are uh, ahead of everybody else uh, in the game to uh, own these status symbols. Or, or we are devoting it to trying to buy nice houses in nice parts of the town, or nice hotel rooms or nice on the beach, or nice hotel rooms on the skiing piece rather than a mile away, where the ability to get those nice things depends entirely not on our absolute income but on our relative income relative to everybody else. And relative income also matters or total income of everybody else matters because there are congestion externalities. So in all of these ways our well-being is likely to be a function not just of our own income as the classic principle of the marginal utility schedule suggests but in some ways a function of other people's income as well. That is on the consumption side of the economy. Meanwhile, on the production side of the economy, I referred to Roger Bootle's insightful distinction between activities which are, in a sense, creative, increasing the net real income available for consumption, and those which are distributive, uh, those which essentially are winning income at the expense of other people. And I referred to the way that Roger identified that this distinction has always been with us, but there may be an argument that an increasing share of activities in an increasingly rich society may tend to be distributive uh, in their nature. And also the fact that some of those distributive activities, and there are many of them for instance in financial services, for some systematic reasons tend to be highly paid. That there may be a systematic tendency for some of the highest paid things within society to be things which are fundamentally distributive or rent extracting in their impact rather than truly creative. And therefore, that development is a contributor to rising inequality. Rising inequality, which is a function of uh, increasingly rich societies to different extents, both in the uh, increasing inequality between the bottom of the income distribution and the median, and between the median and the top. And I then looked at the argument put forward by Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson, who have argued that there are a whole series of health and social problems where there is a correlation, uh, a bad correlation, between income inequality 
and a good a economic results, an inverse correlation. Inequality produces, according to them, bad social results. I broadly agreed with their conclusion while stating some specific reservations. So at the end of lecture one, what I argued was that in a whole series of ways that instrumental conventional wisdom that said the objective is happiness, the way that we get there is growth, the reason why we justify markets and inequality is that they produce more growth which produces more happiness, that that had in a variety of ways broken down. In episode two, as it were, I then turned to the issue of means and in particular to the issue of markets. And I looked at the emergence, buttressed by a very strong school of neoclassical economics and equilibrium theory, the emergence of a Washington consensus which argued that strongly in favor of market liberalization across the full range of markets, including in particular financial market regulation, uh, liberalization. And I noticed then that financial market liberalization has been accompanied by quite startling increases in the size of the financial sector relative to the real economy. Increases in the size of financial institution balance sheets relative to GDP. Increases in the sophistication and complexity of financial uh, instruments. Increases in scale and complexity which were largely welcomed by many in the economics profession and by many official regulators and authorities, for instance here I quoted from the IMF, because it was argued they achieved market completion and market completion delivered the benefits both of greater stability and of greater allocative uh, efficiency. And I noted first that the hypothesis in relation to stability appeared to have been blown out of the water by the 2008 crash but I also questioned whether the hypothesis on allocative efficiency was really true. In particular, questioned whether it wasn't inevitable that there is within a process of financial market liberalization and market completion some process of diminishing marginal benefit where beyond some level of financial intensity, yet more financial intensity is unlikely to deliver benefits. So, so that financial liberalization and deepening from the point at which India now is, is probably beneficial, but from the point at which America had reached in, say, 1990 uh, was not beneficial. Finally, in Lecture 2, I noted that this growth in the scale of financial services in the economy had tended to be accompanied, as these figures from Philippon and Reshef indicate, with a process whereby skilled people in financial services seem to be earning large premia relative to skilled people, equivalently skilled people, in other sectors of the economy. And I noted that under the neoclassical efficient market paradigm, we would know in advance that this is not a problem because all people are paid their marginal social product, therefore if they are paid this money, um, it must be because they are helping to make the economy uh, better off by at least that amount. But I questioned whether that was the case and questioned whether quite a significant slice, I couldn't identify how much, but I would say certainly a significant slice of financial activity falls within the category of Roger Bootle's uh, distributive activities. So at the end of the story so far, what I have is a fairly strong attack upon that instrumental conventional wisdom which justified markets because it produces happiness inequality because it helped produce growth, produced happiness. So the question now as we come to the denouement of this uh, plot is so what? 
And to some people it may be obvious that I'm about to launch into a sort of radical green egalitarianism in which I will be anti-growth because growth is of no value, uh, radically redistributive uh, because uh, units of income are worth more uh, to people at the bottom of the end of the in distribution than at the top, uh, and anti-markets. But I'm afraid I am going to disappoint uh, the really radical end of green egalitarianism because I believe there is a strong case for what I will call liberal capitalism and for that bringing with it, as I think it inevitably will, some non-trivial level of inequality. But I think it is a different case with different implications than that which has been put forward in the instrumental conventional wisdom. So in this lecture, I'm going to do three things. First of all, talk about why we should see growth not as the objective, but as the byproduct of other desirable objectives. Secondly, try to illustrate why changing the objective round in that fashion does actually make some differences to the policy implications that you should draw. And finally, draw some implications for the discipline of economics. Now, I've argued that there is not an instrumental justification for that growth limitlessly increases happiness. But I think there are five important arguments why growth may still be a desirable thing. The first and most obvious is that it's a desirable thing in those parts of the world which are still relatively poor. At that early stage of the development process, I do think that Africa would be a better place, most countries in Africa would be a better place if they achieved straightforward, measurable GDP per capita uh, a increases. However, that's not my main focus in these lectures, which are focused on how things change within already rich developed countries. The second argument, the poor in rich countries, I think responds to what might well be a reasonable challenge to me. Well, you're telling us that growth doesn't matter, but that's because you're quite well off within this society. If you were one of the poorer uh, within British society, you would still care about uh, growth. So does it still matter that there are poor people, as indeed there are relatively poor people and indeed absolutely poor people in rich developed societies who would uh, still fall short of what I've suggested is the sort of breakthrough point where average income growth is, never, is no longer vitally uh, important? Well, I think this is an important argument, but the precise implications of it depends on how much importance you attach in poverty to relative poverty versus absolute income. Obviously, if the key problem is absolute income in itself, then growth uh, may be part of the way out of it. But if it is also relative income, then what we cannot say is construct this argument. We can't say economic growth in rich countries still matters because it matters to poorer citizens. Economic growth is maximized by significant inequalities and incentives. Therefore, don't worry if economic growth is combined with increasing inequality. Uh, if it is the case that relative income matters uh, and is an important factor, then that is an internally contradicted argument. But even if you did believe that relative income does matter, you could construct an argument for growth. But it would be this argument. It would basically say that you will never manage to achieve an element of redistribution without growth. And the reason why goes back to the structure of the marginal utility schedule, which I set out in Lecture 1. Average income and higher income people will not get major future benefits in happiness from further increments in their income. That is pretty unlikely. 
But pretty much everybody really resents having income and wealth already attained taken away from them. The shape of the marginal utility schedule is kinked around the point where you are presently occupying in terms of contentment and income. And that means that growth may be essential simply in order to be able to achieve redistributions which deal with the relative income of the less well-off. So I do think there is a serious argument relating to the poor in rich countries. But moving on to the third argument, and this is where I think the arguments get really uh, important and begin to change uh, in their nature, I think it's important for us to realize that uh, 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 there is an argument for growth which is not based on the idea that it will necessarily de deliver further increments of happiness, but relates somewhat to what happens in the absence of markets and indeed to fundamental issues of economic freedom. The first of these is to note that where we have a complete absence of markets, such as in planned economies like the Soviet Union, we tend, or we seem to sometimes get, not just an absence of further maximized growth, but absolute regression, stagnation, and setbacks to human happiness. And that may well be fundamental. And it may be fundamental for two reasons, uh, two variants of, uh, one particular, of an overall theme. The overall theme is that planned economies don't just break down because of Hayek's great insight. And Hayek's great insight was that the price mechanism provides a process for the processing of information far more sensitive and uh, effective than any planned economy uh, can replicate. They don't just break down from that, but because the nature of planned economies and the absence of choice changes people's behavior. And it changes it, I think, in two ways. First of all, a pervasive tendency throughout an economy for people who no longer feel personal incentives to cease caring about service, cease caring about maintenance, to slack off, to cease pursuing efficiency objectives. And that undoubtedly occurred within the Soviet Union. Secondly, however, a strong tendency for elite groups, for those people who are high-skilled, high-energy, and driven by relative status competition, to channel that energy into destructive activities, to the aggrandizement of units for its own sake, or into pure corruption. And that indeed was a theme which Keynes noted and which he thought was a justification for significant inequalities of incomes and wealth. He simply said that dangerous human proclivities can be canalized into comparatively harmless channels by the existence of opportunities for money-making and private wealth, which, if they cannot be satisfied in this way, might find their outlet in cruelty, the reckless pursuit of personal power and authority, and other forms of self-aggrandizement. It is better that a man should tyrannize over his bank balance than over his fellow citizens. Now, that may seem like a very negative justification for markets, capitalism, inequality. But I think in real-world economics, one of the key things we have to do is start with human beings as they are and realizing that we have to create societies which deal with their behavioral tendencies and which channel them into reasonable results. But once we start thinking of growth, 
not as an end in itself because it will create happiness, but as the expression of national, natural human uh, proclivities, I think it leads to a more direct and positive justification of economic freedom, of technological change, and of innovation as, as ends in themselves, even if we do not believe that they are going to produce a permanent increase in happiness. And again, I think this applies both on the consumption and the production side of thinking about the economy. On the consumption side, this is a chart I showed in the first lecture, and it's taken from Bruno Frey and Alois Stutzer, uh, The Economics of Happiness. And what it illustrates is a process whereby the marginal utility schedule, as economists call it, continually adjusts. At any one point, point one, you're looking forward to a process of your income going up and the new products that you will then enjoy. But after a period of time, once you've got those new products, they simply go into your aspiration level and you are no longer permanently happy. But although there is, therefore, as it were, a flat line of long-term happiness, it may be that you are only on that flat line because you can always see in front of you change, innovation, new products. Now, I accept that because I am no happier today than I was 20 years ago when I had a smaller array of electronic gadgetry, that it is relatively unlikely that in five years' time I will be made happier by having the latest generation of electronic gadgetry. But it still may be important to my happiness that I live in a world where there are new things, new ideas, new styles, new fashions, new innovations, investments in our urban ar architecture, change in itself. That is, of course, a culturally relative statement, but I think it is a culturally relative statement which is almost inherent to the modern world, the modern world of the great transformation. I think it is simply one of the defining characteristics of the mindset which we have learned to have, and as I said in lecture one, I don't think we're going to put that genie back in the bottle, and I don't particularly want to do so. I simply think we have to manage the consequences of that. So I think it is the case that change innovation, higher income as a result, is an important part to people's current happiness, even if it doesn't make them permanently happy. The journey matters, not the destination. In addition, however, if we then turn to the production side of the economy, I think it is reasonable to argue that economic freedom needs to be seen as an end per se. The Soviet Union was a disaster, and this is documented for human well-being, for human happiness in its final years, not only, perhaps not primarily because it failed to deliver a large and equal material output or service output to that of America or Europe, but because it denied people the freedom to make their own choices. And this is a point that Amartya Sen has made in a book which you probably know should be called Development as Freedom, not Freedom as Development, so turn that round on the top line. In his book, Development of Freedom, he points out that the freedom of people to act as they choose in deciding where to work, what to produce, what to consume, is an important aim of an economy. He asks us to go through the thought experiment. Suppose Hayek had been wrong. Suppose it had been possible in the Soviet economy to achieve the same standard of living with the same products as in the US, but with the, everybody being told to which production unit to go 
and what they were to produce. Would we have lost something? Yes, we would have lost something. We'd have lost the freedom of people to act as they choose in deciding to work, what to produce, what to consume. And he therefore argues that the merit of the market system does not lie only in its capacity to generate more efficient culmination outcomes, but also in the processes by which those outcomes are achieved. And points out, I think importantly, that one of the things that happened in the last 50 or so years of economists, e economics is a tendency for it very heavily to focus on culmination outcomes in a way which was not true of earlier economists like Adam Smith, like Hume, like Ricardo, for whom the culmination outcomes were sometimes secondary to the political economy concepts of choice as aims uh, in themselves. So I think a crucial justification for economic freedoms and markets is therefore one which exists independent of any allocative efficiency uh, benefits. But if economic freedom and markets is combined with the attainment of one other important objective, which is an avoidance of involuntary unemployment, then we are going to get growth. And avoiding involuntary unemployment is very important because all of the happiness analysis shows that people are made very unhappy by involuntary unemployment, both because it is a setback to already attained income and wealth and because it is an exclusion from participation in society and from uh, involvement in things that give one status. And if you have the economic freedom and the spirit of intellectual inquiry and the continual change of products and innovation and the processes of efficiency improvement, which some people will devote themselves to with economic freedom, you will have involuntary unemployment unless you have aggregate economic growth. So growth in rich developed societies is not therefore the objective, but it is the byproduct, as I suggest, part just acceptable, part perhaps beneficial, part harmful of other desirable objectives. The question then becomes, if that is the objective, does this redefinition of the objective actually change any aspects of public policy? Uh, that was a question which was asked actually by Jonathan Portis here on Monday night. He said, well, okay, I buy your proposition that we should redesign uh, the objective, but suppose I had redesigned that objective 15 years ago. I still want to avoid involuntary unemployment. I still want to allow uh, economic freedom to innovate. Would I, as a government, actually have done much which was different? Does the objective, this might be intellectually right, but does it change uh, real policies? Well, I think that's a very good challenge, but I think the answer is yes. Because I think there are some things change, and in a non-trivial way, when we define these objectives in this fashion. And I think what changes is that when you look at the causes of happiness, the shape of the marginal utility schedule, which I discussed in Lecture 1, it suggests that policy should have a very strong focus on maximizing stability and minimizing downsides, on maximizing the range of choice, including public choice, and on minimizing the possibilities of positional goods competition. And I'd like to illustrate four specific ways in, that in which that actually changes your attitude to some public policies, and then deal with two where it raises issues to which I don't have a complete resolution, 
but where it certainly tells us that some of the things we've said in the past are, are not convincing. The first point I'm going to make is about financial regulation and macroeconomic management. And the essential point here is that if preventing downsides matters a lot, stabilizing the economy matters more than achieving the last tiny bit of growth. And if we believe that, we would have made different choices about financial regulation in the past. We have now suffered, as a result of an unstable financial system, a huge downside of a recession and a burden of public debt out into the future. And that is undoubtedly a downside for human welfare. And it should enter, therefore, that should be something we try and uh, guard against. But it was the case before the crisis that when people said this system might be creating instability, the counter-argument was, no, but there are benefits. There are benefits of market completion which will improve allocative efficiency, which will increase the rate of growth. Now, clearly, we need some way of trading off stability versus the extra growth, if you did get extra growth, that would come from the dynamic effects of financial innovation. We need some discount rate that puts the two together. And that indeed is the analysis which has been attempted by the BIS in the work which the Financial Stability Board on which I sit has been doing to think about optimal ways forward for a regulation. How do we trade off potential disadvantages for growth if there are any versus for stability. If you actually look at the details, and I set this out in the lecture, we are using a discount rate in that which assumes that all elements of growth, both positive and negative, are equally important. But they're not. If you had to trade off taking the growth rate on average over time from 1.95% to 2%, versus leaving it at 1.95% and having it very volatile, everything we know about human welfare, uh, sorry, leaving it at 1.95% and having it stable versus 2% and volatile, everything we know about human welfare would say that we should prefer the very slightly less growing but more stable path. So I think it does change it and it puts us towards stability. Similarly, when I think we look at the challenges of climate change, the issue of minimizing downsides becomes vitally important. If we take action to reduce our carbon emissions, there will be some cost, but there will be a delivered benefit of the avoidance of the costs of climate change. How do we compare those benefits and costs? Now that, of course, was the issue given to Nick Stern, who produced his brilliant uh, report on the economics of climate change. And he argued that the costs of mitigating climate change were actually quite slight, that the UK could cut its emissions by 80% over 40 years at a cost to GDP of 1% to 2%. And that is, those are the sort of figures which the Climate Change Committee have subsequently confirmed. So that, as you can see, the impact of this on the measured standard of living will be the difference between those two lines on this chart, two lines which at the back you probably can't see the difference uh, between, uh, which if in addition 
we're not convinced that higher uh, income necessarily goes through to happiness doesn't seem like a terribly great loss. As for the benefits of mitigating the avoided costs of climate change, they're much more difficult to work out. Some are conceptually clear but difficult to quantify, such as changes in agricultural yields. Some are inherently uncertain, things like contingent social and political responses. What if the impacts on agricultural yields or economies are so great that you get movement of people and political instability? Some are the small probability of catastrophic losses. So the process of quantifying the costs and the benefits is uncertain, but Nick had a shot at it and argued that compared with those costs of 1 or 2% for mitigating, the benefits of avoided harm could be thought of as 5 to 20% of GDP. But that depends crucially on the discount rate that you choose, that comparison. And discount rates make a hell of a difference. Look at it on the, over on the right-hand side of this chart. Discounted at 4% real and assuming 2% per annum growth, 100% of GDP in 2050 is worth 6% of GDP today. At 2% uh, real, it's worth 100% of GDP today. Now, the implication of that, if you believe that GDP is the measure of everything, is that if I told you that the world was going to cease to exist because of climate change in 2050 and that you could stop it by sacrificing 6% of GDP today, you wouldn't do it because that's not a good trade-off. So the discount rate does make a difference to these decisions. And there are some economists, in particular William, William Nordhaus, who have argued that the discount should be, rate should be something like 4% because future people will be richer and better able to deal with the problems of climate change and to offset climate change adverse impacts through their higher income. But there are three reasons why that argument doesn't work. The first is that losers in future may be in poor countries and may be poor, may poorer than the richer emitters today. And as Partha Dasgupta has pointed out, if that is true, we should be applying a negative discount rate. If we focus on the avoidance of negatives for people who are in a poor position, you end up with a negative discount rate. When you try to work out the small probability of catastrophic losses, if you believe that there is a small probability of a catastrophe, and that's what the science suggests, so big that it would make all of our standard of living worse, then that small probability of a catastrophic loss multiplied together should enter the calculation at a negative discount rate. And if there are losses of environmental goods, which are in a sense ends in themselves, one's love of the variety of species, the beauty of natural spaces, which we care about in and of themselves, then you simply cannot use an aggregative approach which takes the gains of economic income and offsets them against the environmental losses. And so in all of these ways, once you start thinking about the avoidance of extreme negatives or significant negatives, or once you start thinking about the difficulties of aggregating uh, across different types of utility, you end up believing that even if Nick had worked out that the cost of mitigating climate change was 5 or 10% of GDP, not 1 or 2, it would still be a sensible thing to do. The third point I want to make is about maximizing public choice, and I'm going to illustrate this with a specific example rather than the general. Over the course of the last 10 years in the previous Labour government, there was a lot of focus on the UK's national productivity 
deficit versus the US. And there was analysis that showed that one of the key elements of this national productivity deficit was the problem of retail productivity. And this entered the public policy in a real influential fashion in saying that we therefore had to deregulate out-of-town supermarkets because we would then achieve improvements in our national productivity. National productivity, which would then slightly increase our long-term growth rate. But the point about such developments is that they have negative downsides, at least perceived negative downsides for some people, in terms of traffic creation, in terms of countryside destruction, in terms of village stores uh, put out of business, in terms of the vibrancy of local town centres. The key point, once you shift the definition of the objectives from growth as the byproduct of desirable things to, to growth as the byproduct than growth as the overriding objective, is that you end up believing that those sorts of decisions ought to be made by local choice rather than by entering into that debate some supposed national imperative to squeeze out the last percentage points of productivity improvement and growth. Particularly because, again, as Bruno Frey and Alois Stutzer illustrate, exercising choice is actually something that people value in and of itself quite separate from the fact that they may be able to achieve what to them are superior culmination outcomes. Finally, minimize positional goods competition. One of the reasons why, as we get richer, it's not turning into greater well-being or contentment is that as we get richer, part of our income is devoted to the process of positional goods competition but is also devoted, but is also in that very process degrading the quality of what we are competing for. As we get richer, we want to go on nice skiing holidays or beach holidays or countryside holidays or historic town holidays, but everybody else is get richer and can afford to get there, so the experience is more crowded and there is actually a degradation of the quality of the thing that everybody uh, is enjoying. Now, there's not much we can do about that. Um, as we get richer, that will occur. But it's clearly made worse if you have a relentless increase in population density. Some of the things that we enjoy are inherently related to the density of population and the amount of travel and the amount of people trying to enjoy a positionally specific limited supply goods. So one of the things that we should undoubtedly do is welcome the fact, if it occurs, of population stabilization. Many of those conflicts over the competition for positional goods will get easier if it is the case that the world population does actually stabilize at 9 or 10 billion by the mid-century rather than go on up and up. They will get easier in the EU 27 if we truly do stabilize at about 500 billion. And they would get easier in the UK if our population was likely to stabilize at about 60 billion rather than go from 60 to 70 billion. As it goes from 60 to 70 billion, which is the UN and ONS medium forecast, we will intensify the nature of the positional goods competition for things like attractive housing. We will do that. Now, why do I feel the need to say that? It's not because I am suggesting that we should have, as it were, a birth rate policy. I simply welcome the fact that it tends to be an extraordinarily universal fact uh, of uh, human development that when you give women in particular the right to choose and the ability to choose, they happen to choose a, a birth rates at about the replacement level. It's an extraordinary uh, global uh, phenomenon. 
Um, nor am I suggesting that we should disallow all immigration. In fact, I find this a very difficult issue because undoubtedly for many immigrants, immigration is hugely valuable for their own happiness and their well-being. But all that I argue is that into these debates, we should not introduce the idea which has been introduced considerably over the last five to ten years that somehow Europe or the UK need to grow their populations. You can find in the press statements which say Britain needs more immigrants or needs more babies in order to survive, in order to flourish, in order to grow. Once you no longer believe that growth is the end which we must pursue, then those become meaningless statements and we need to describe, decide things like immigration on another basis entirely. And the general theme of these four points is that the overall objective is not to maximize growth, but to create a stable environment in which freedom to choose can be allowed expression while minimizing downside consequences and setbacks. And I do think, therefore, in some subtle ways, policy changes when you change the objectives. But if these are the obvious things, let me turn to two issues where I think what this analysis does is unsettle old certainties without giving us completely clear answers as how to proceed for the future. The first of those is, are some goods, services, etc., more important to human well-being and happiness than others, even if they are accounted for equally in GDP? In Lecture 1, we touched on the marginal utility schedule and suggested that at the aggregate level, with all the difficulties of thinking about that, it might have flattened out. But that still leaves the possibility that we might be faced with different goods and services which we buy where we are at different points on a utility uh, schedule. What might those be? Well, on the left, good health. There's a lot of evidence that good health makes people permanently happier. That getting rid of the tragedy of premature death and the terrible things that that does to families, that that is a very good thing for happiness. That would say that more health resources or better diet or better school sports facilities or whatever still does have the ability to deliver a higher level of benefit. Then there are some where it's highly likely that we've simply reached a plateau. A plateau in which we buy new things every year and the process of being able to buy them every year doesn't make us uh, any richer but we're just on a continual uh, process uh, with extra income devoted to them uh, won't make us happier but we're happy that we're able to do that and that may include uh, branded fashion goods of the sort which are illustrated on uh, this chart where what they're involved in is relative status competition rather than anything which would be at all likely uh, in the long term to make everybody happier. And the third is there are some things that we spend our money on which may produce congestion and environmental damage which will be, unless carefully managed, positively harmful. Now, if that is the case, then you'd want to do more of the left and less of the right and maybe just the same amount as the middle. But of course, if you believe in a neoclassical efficient markets theory, these shapes cannot possibly exist because they would already have been arbitraged away by individual behavior because it is a proposition of neoclassical efficient markets that we know that these charts are each at the same point 
at the margin in terms of the marginal utility. And if not, people would already have shifted their income from A to B in order to become happier. One of, one of the great examples, therefore, of the neoclassical way of arguing that things are in the best of all possible worlds because how could they possibly not be? You have to remember that the true believer in neoclassical efficient markets hypothesis is this person who wanders down a street and he sees a 50 pound note on the pavement. He doesn't pick it up because he knows it's not there because if it was there, someone would have picked it up already. So <laughs> that, that is the neoclassical argument to it. But there are three reasons why that may not be the case. First, because some of these goods may only be consumed as a result of public choice. They may be inherently collective. Secondly, because our demand for some may be not self-generated, but generated by social mores, herd-like fashion, and indeed by the large devotion of advertising to make us at least temporarily want something, even though it is not necessarily likely to make us happier. And third, some of these arise from congestion and environmental externalities where the individual has no particular ability to influence the result. They cannot take it into result because the, the, the negative impact into the result because uh, for they look at simply their marginal benefit and uh, their marginal costs and the congestion externality doesn't enter into that. Given all those, there is a danger that we are getting this growth as a byproduct, but not the best form of growth. And there are, of course, some people who would take that as far as saying that we ought to have an advertising tax, because advertising makes us want things which aren't going to make us happy. Now, I'm not going to go that far, uh, and I don't know whether I would be, ever be willing to be that paternalistic. But I simply suggest that good economics in this area really unsettles any belief that we axiomatically know that the growth we are getting is the best for human happiness, it's almost certainly not, and raises a set of questions about whether we can and should and how we are re reach political decisions such that the pattern of growth is most likely to be favourable for well-being. The other really difficult issue is how much inequality is fair, is optimal, is unavoidable. Uh, the instrumental justification of inequality was that it was justified because and to the extent that it delivered growth, which delivered well-being. So low taxation rates incentivize effort and entrepreneurship. The proposition was you should vote for low taxes on the rich because that will increase growth and make you, the average citizen, higher. That is, I think, in a nutshell, a pretty good a, uh, a definition, a description of a key Thatcherite theme. The problem is, I've argued, that that instrumental justification has largely broken down. What can we say in that situation? What can we say about inequality? Well, I'm not going to suggest a full resolution of what is optimal inequality. And indeed, one of my major messages is that economics in itself cannot give us the answer to that, that it is an inherently political issue. But I would like to suggest that what the analysis does is again unsettle some of our previous assumptions. I think that good economics, the economics of happiness, the economics of thinking about end objectives suggest the following things. First, relative income does matter, must matter to some extent, clearly matters between the bottom end of the distrib income distribution and the median, probably also matters between the median and the top end of the distribution. 
Probably not between the median and the very, very, very top. It is probably the case that the existence of a small smattering of billionaires whose lifestyle is so detached from ordinary people that they can gain the sort of vicarious fascination of looking at the Hello magazine uh, in the dentist's waiting room while not actually uh, this invading in any way uh, their own sense of self-worth. That is probably true, and that is the classic argument, uh, you know, does the ordinary Joe give a damn about how much Wayne Rooney is paid? But I think it probably is the case that if not just the hundreds of billionaires, but a significant slice of the top decile, say in the UK several hundred thousand or a couple of million, significantly pull away from the median income, that probably does do something to the median earner's sense of how successful they are, of whether of the intensity of relative social, uh, competition, of the sense to which they will ever be able to succeed in competition for positional goods, which should have some worries, uh, should be, create some worries. And it is probably the case that that sort of dramatic pulling away, which we have seen in the last several decades, probably does have the effect which Pickett and Wilkinson suggest, which is that it makes it more difficult for the totality of citizenry to coalesce round common objectives where common objectives are required because their experiences are so radically diverse. My second point is that the standard responses to that are, I think, inadequate. I think it is inadequate to say, okay, there's inequality, but we'll just have growth because that will make the poorer better off. Because if inequality matters in itself, in relative terms, growth doesn't solve it. Secondly, I'm not convinced that the panacea, the cross-party, cross-political uh, panacea, which all good men and women always agree on, uh, which is let's increase skills, necessarily works. The skills argument is often put of, well, let's skill everybody up. And once they're up, we're up, we'll be able to succeed in global competition in the high-tech areas, not the low-wage areas. And everybody will be a high-tech engineer, not a low-paid textile worker. Well, the crucial thing to remember there is that the vast majority of jobs in rich, developed countries actually have not much to do with international competition at all. There are lots and lots of relatively straightforward jobs in the non-traded sector uh, of the uh, economy. Microsoft employs 35,000 people. Walmart employs about 1.25 million people. The total number of people employed in all of IT is trivial compared with the number of people who stack shelves in shops or who serve you in restaurants. One of the key uh, statements when you think about jobs that you should bear in mind is that whereas Tony Blair once said it's the economy stupid, we should almost certainly say it's not the economy stupid. Um, most of the economy has very little to do with high tech. And in those areas, what may matter, therefore, is what is the relativity of the income of the shelf stacker to the senior management and the chief executive of the supermarket, a differential which has increased very dramatically over the last 20 years. And would that be changed by increasing the skill of the shelf stacker? Or is there something here, a process of relative status competition, relative skill competition, where as long as there is a variety in relative skills, the differential will still exist. You can actually argue it either way, and I do that in the lecture, but it is not clear to me that in those areas, skilling up is necessarily 
the panacea argument that we suggest. As for opportunity, don't bother about the result, the outcome, the distribution of results. All that matters is equality of opportunity. I think there are two problems with that argument. First of all, I'm not going to argue against equality of opportunity. Uh, everybody agrees with that. It is undoubtedly a good thing, improving opportunity and access. But it is a very difficult thing to do when there are large variations of outcome. And it is itself not a panacea. And it's not a panacea because actually you're not made much happier by knowing that if you fail in relative status competition, the fault lay in your genes not in your inheritance. A point made very effectively in a book which I think deserves much more reading and rereading than it now gets, which is Michael Young's Rise of the Meritocracy, written in 1958. A purely meritocratic society can still be one where relative status, anxiety, and competition is a force for human uh, unhappiness. However, what is also true is that Relative status competition really invalidates standard incentive theory. I am a relatively fortunate person in the sense that throughout most of my working life, I've had a high enough income to have to pay the top rate of income tax. That has varied from 60% to 40% to 50%. At no time has that change made the slightest bit of difference to how hard I have worked or have I observed any difference in the work effort of any of the other high-income and high-skilled people who seem to be working around me. And there's a very simple reason why that might be the case, which is that if what matters, and matters in particular when you have a high income, is not your absolute income, because you're beyond the point of satiation in how many washing machines you've got, but your relative income, because that is what determines whether you can afford a house in a nice part of town, your relative income relative to everybody else, the fact that income tax goes up or down on every other high-earning person doesn't make any difference to your relative income. Once you allow for the importance of relative status competition among high-income, high-energy people, you realize that a lot of the standard theory of incentive breaks down. And I believe that the range of the movement of income tax within which it would make relatively little difference to work effort is much wider than we've often uh, suggested. Now, that is not to say that there aren't some limits out there somewhere, and there are also important limits to do with international migration or with the intensity of avoidance activities. And those in, uh, limits are, in a sense, a sense of fairness. To be blunt, at 50%, I am quite happy, and I think it's a good idea, that I pay taxes in order to contribute to the common weal. At 80%, I will employ a high-skilled tax accountant. And there is simply a sliding scale there, but it's not a sliding scale which has much to do with work effort. So if all of those things which we've tended to talk about in uh, uh, economics aren't all that important, what can we actually say about inequality? What, wh how do we actually address it? I think the difficulty is that it's very difficult to address it without using words like fairness. And economists move away, 
divert their eyes from the concept of fairness because it's a tricky concept. And it is a tricky concept because there are no easy answers. But actually, most people do approach this on some sense of fairness as to whether they can see the reason why somebody is paid so much, either in relation to some specific skill or specific responsibility or specific benefit which they appear to see themselves. They don't tend to resent high artistic or sporting skill because they understand what the skill is. They don't tend to resent somewhat higher earnings for people who have large responsibilities that can make a lot of difference to good or ill for people's welfare because they can see large responsibilities. And they don't tend to resent the entrepreneur who has created the restaurant that they enjoy going to because they feel they are in control of the process as to whether they go to that restaurant or not. But they do tend to resent things which they believe are simply distributive activities or which they can't see the value of. Now, do I have a resolution out of that as to what the progressive rate of income tax should be? No. Do I have a suggestion that we have some magic way of rebalancing the economy entirely from distributive to creative activities? No. All I suggest is three things. First, that there is an issue of fairness and that it needs to be debated and it needs to be carefully considered. And luckily, we have Will Hutton out there at the moment thinking about fairness. In fact, he should be here. He said he was here and he could tell us about it. But we got a message earlier saying Will Hutton is late, which for those of you are friends of Will Hutton, we recognize as not a specific statement about a specific point in time, but an existential statement about the general state of the world. Will Hutton is late, but by next year, Will Hutton will tell us something about fairness. But the other thing which I think we can say is that although we have no absolute ability in an economy to distinguish totally between distributive and creative activities, because actually, if you look carefully at it, most jobs within them have a mix of distributive and creative activities. I think we do have, and we should have, a general tendency to lean against overall processes in our economy which might tend to create more distributive activities, and I think that is very relevant to some of the discussion that I put forward in Lecture 2 about some financial sector activities. Let me then finally turn to the implications of all this for the discipline of economics. I have told a story in which there was an instrumental conventional wisdom which saw growth as the end aim of activity and in which a neoclassical theory of market completion led on to a sort of Washington consensus in favor of extreme financial liberalization which resulted in real policy mistakes and harm. And I implied at the end of lecture two that part of the fault lay with economics itself when it ignored the realities of real human behavior and real-world complexity and uncertainty. But last night there was a question which said, well, is that fair? Is economics really at fault? Or did the fault lie simply in the abuse of economics by politicians? Did economics ever really say that markets were perfect and should be used uh, to pursue economic growth? Or was that simply something which happened in the translation of good economics through to the simplicities of policy. Well, people like Robert Skidelsky have argued very much that there was something wrong with economics and have argued that we need 
quote, to reconstruct economics. So what I'm going to do now is to put economics in the dock and present the case for the prosecution and for the defense. The prosecution and the key prosecutors here are uh, Robert Skidelsky, should have a Y there, not an I, but Robert Skidelsky from Keynes, The Return of the Master, and John Cassidy from How Markets Fail. And the fundamental argument would go like this. For over half a century, the dominant strain of academic economics has been concerned with exploring, through ever more complex mathematics, how economically rational human beings interact in markets. And the conclusions reached have appeared optimistic, indeed at times panglossian. Kenneth Arrow and Gerard de Brewer illustrated that a competitive market economy with a fully complete set of markets was Pareto efficient. New classical macroeconomists such as Robert Lucas illustrated that if human beings are not only rational in their preferences and choices, but also in their expectations, then the macroeconomy will have a strong tendency towards equilibrium and sustained involuntary unemployment will be, by definition, a non-problem. And tests of the efficient market theory appeared to illustrate that liquid financial markets are not driven by excessive uh, herd and momentum effects, but by the efficient processing of all available information, making the actual price of a security a good estimate of its intrinsic value. Economics, as a result of this, did provide strong support for the proposition that totally free markets achieve the objective of allocative efficiency, and it also tended to assume that allocative efficiency and income growth, growth over time were desirable objectives, not so much explicitly, but simply because deeper inquiry about the relationship between income and welfare and happiness would have interfered with mathematical precision and taken economics off into fuzzy discussion of happiness, which mathematical economics deliberately eschewed. But then the defense lawyers come along and say, no, no, that's really unfair. Academic economics was never a, this monolithic. This is a simplification of caricature. Throughout the last half century, much of academic economics has been devoted quite explicitly to understanding why and under what conditions these simplistic assumptions do not hold. Kenneth Arrow himself spent much of his career exploring market imperfections. Stigler and others considered the costs of gathering the information required to make markets efficient. All economic textbooks included taxonomies of potential market failure which might justify policy interventions. And more fundamentally, the work of Nobel laureates such as James Merlis, Joe Stiglitz, G George Akerlof illustrated that once we really understand the implications of information economics, markets can settle far from an efficient equilibrium and equilibria can be multiple and fragile. Meanwhile, the work of behavioral economists such as Danny Kahneman, also of course awarded a Nobel Prize, questioned the very assumption of rational choice of a homo economicus driven solely by the parts of the brain devoted to rational information processing. And finally, the work of Nobel laureate Amartya Sen kept alive questions about whether we were right to assume that culmination outcomes are the sole objectives of economics and whether these could be adequately measured by GDP. So there has been diversity. So do we really need, as Robert Skidelsky has argued, a reconstruction of economics? Should we blame economics or just how economics was abused? Well, I still think that there is power in the Cassidy-Skidelsky prosecution case because I think it is legitimate to argue that there were tendencies inherent within dominant ways that economics was practiced which did tend to produce a translation into, of their concepts, 
into a simplified conventional wisdom and Washington consensus. Keynes famously wrote that practical men who believe themselves quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. But I suggested yesterday that the more important problem is that reasonably intellectual men and women who occupy positions in the regulators, central banks, and finance ministries of the world are often the slaves of simplified versions of the dominant stream of economics of presently alive economists. And I think there was a process whereby the subtle and precise findings of economics, of, let us say, the Arrow de Breur understanding of general equilibrium, got translated into the Washington Consensus, and those three simplifications were almost inherent within the nature of how we practiced economics. First, there was an analysis of market imperfections, but as we translated it to practical policy, those tended to get described as things which we could get rid of with some extra transparency and more complete markets rather than things which were inherent. And that did reflect the tendency of much of economics to insist that you must be able precisely to mathematically model things and that you needed to be very wary, for instance, of the behavioral and descriptive economics of, for instance, Danny Kahneman or George Akerlof and Robert Schiller in their latest book, Animal Spirits. Secondly, there was a process whereby we slipped from understanding that Arrow de Breur said there was a Pareto equilibrium to believing that markets produce a good outcome. Well, they only do it if there is the appropriate redistribution. Again, most economists would protect themselves as ever having suggested that, so therefore it may be the main problem was uh, in the translation. Finally, there was a slipping from the idea of equilibrium to growth as the objective. And again, a lot of economists would defend themselves as ever having said that growth was the objective, but I would argue that that translation was almost inevitable when economics did not have enough people asking the questions which Richard Layard has recently asked and which Frey and Stutzer ask about what the objectives actually are. So I think there is a case that something went wrong with economics and that there is a need to reconstruct our economics and to make sure that we have economics for the real world, not for the ease of modelling. And that does have implications for the way that we use economics to think about objectives and means. Within the objectives of economics, we cannot simply say, we're not going to ask questions about objectives, we're going to model something in relation to income and not ask whether that's good or bad. I think we have to ask questions about, is happiness the objective, or welfare or freedom, and are they the same thing or different? How are they related to each other and to income? And can we measure them? And we cannot avoid the difficult judgmental issues of measuring happiness or welfare. We can't simply sweep things away because it makes it less mathematically easily to manipulate. And I think when we turn to means, we need to deal with the fact that there are inherent failures of complex markets. We need to deal with the consequences of human mental processes. For that phrase I used yesterday from Andy Haldane, that in many decisions that people make about long-term investments, they are literally in two minds because they have a ratiocinating mind and an instinctive mind. We need to ask those questions which take us into the areas of psychology and neuroscience. And we need to understand that there are some problems in economics 
which relate to Frank Knight's concept of inherent irreducible uncertainty, not mathematically modelable risk of the sort which tended to dominate financial economics in the period before the crisis. Sound economics, therefore, needs to be rooted in the real world and has to have a large behavioral and psychological element. And that means that sound economics needs to recognize the importance of other disciplines, social, philosophical, ethical issues. It cannot be entirely a discipline in and of itself. And that, of course, is what Keynes argued. He argued that economics is a moral and not a natural science, that no part of man's nature or his institutions must be entirely outside the economist's regard, and the, the economist should be mathematician, historian, statesman, and philosopher in some degree. Though I have always suspected that when he wrote those final words, he really rather thought that there was only one person who was ever going to fully meet that rather high bar. But there is the proposition, and I broadly agree with Keynes in that. And that leaves my final question. Would Lionel Robbins have agreed? The standard assumption in the philosophy of economics is that he probably wouldn't. After all, Robbins believed in a very precise, mathematical, logical way of thinking about uh, economics which eschewed judgmental issues and ethics. Indeed, he said very clearly, economics deals with ascertainable facts, ethics with valuations and obligations. The two fields of inquiry are not on the same plane of discourse. And when Keynes said economics is essentially a moral science, the opening line of that sentence is, as against Robbins, economics is essentially a moral science. And Robbins was very clear that some of the things that uh, economists have been up to he did, would not agree with. Uh, Richard Layard has argued in happiness that uh, we can use the concept of diminishing marginal utility as a direct mechanism to justify progressive taxation because it proves to us that taking units of income from the rich and giving them to the poor have a higher utility level. But Robbins argued quite explicitly that that rests on the extension of the concept of diminishing marginal utility into a field in which it is entirely illegitimate. So the opening point of view is that Robbins might not have been sympathetic to this idea that economics has to be moral, that it has to be dealing with economic history, with statesmen, with philosopher, with ethics. But actually, I think what is interesting is that if you read Robbins' essay carefully, his essay on the nature and significance of economic science, many of the ways that he defines economics, the precise way, and the precise way that it delineates what it can and cannot say, if those warnings had been heeded, would have guarded us against the simplicities of the instrumental conventional wisdom and the Washington Consensus. Because what Robbins was very clear to say was not that economics could answer every question, but that it couldn't. He said, this is what economics does, and there are other disciplines that answer other questions. He said, for instance, that the concept of world money income and national money income have strict significance only for monetary theory. And that is actually a very important point. It means that when you work out GDP per capita, the conventions and assumptions that go into working it out are so arbitrary 
that when you start trying to work out what has happened to GDP per capita over a 20-year series, that doesn't tell you much. But when you start trying to compare British or French GDP per capita and say, oh, we're losing out in the fight against the French because they're 3% ahead of us, it doesn't matter very much. But because arbitrary conventions don't matter much quarter by quarter, GDP figures are very, very useful as inputs to macroeconomic management to the Bank of England thinking about inflation targeting. And that is there in Robbins. He also said there is no penumbra of approbation around the theory of equilibrium. Equilibrium is just equilibrium. But I think that got lost somewhere along the process of the last 40 years. He also said that it is highly desirable that the economist who wishes that the application of his science should be fruitful should be fully qualified in cognate disciplines and should be prepared to invoke their assistance. So he said those cognate disciplines are not economics, but we need to bring them to bear. In which case, the distinction between what I might call the Keynes-Skidelsky point of view and that of Robbins is less extreme than it might at first appear. Either we say with Keynes-Skidelsky that the economist must be mathematician, historian, statesman, and philosopher in some degree, or we say with Robbins that economics should be defined in a very precise and narrow sense and should be humble about the very limited range of questions to which it can in itself give answers, recognizing that it needs to combine with other disciplines if we wish to address really important and difficult issues about social objectives and how to achieve them. Either way, I think that leads us to Robert Skidelsky's conclusion that we should be very wary of teaching and practicing economics as a narrowly defined discipline unconnected to others, that economists should study economic history and other aspects of the social science as well as mathematical economic theory. And either way, it says that public policy should never be based on the delusion that there is a corpus of mathematically precise economics which provides either a definition of desirable objectives or certainty as to the means by which to achieve them. We need to recognize that economic policy choices are political rather than narrowly technical in nature. There is nothing in economics, wrote Lionel Robbins, which relieves us of the obligation to choose. Too many policymakers and politicians who at least thought they were drawing on the insights of economists forgot or choose, chose to ignore that fact in the several decades of conventional wisdom and apparent certainty which led up to the financial crisis. Thank you very much. We, we don't have uh, very long for questions, um, but let's take a couple. I think it would really be fair to give any billionaires here the opportunity to ask. I think Wayne Rooney is late, but um, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's take two or three comments from down here. Have you got a mic? You got a mic? Yeah. We'll take, we'll take these, these three and Obviously, given the time, you can be as succinct uh, as you can, I'm sure. Um, in your first lecture, you argue that uh, congestion and uh, environmental externalities increase as income increases. And today, you talked about uh, the importance of uh, having different skill set within an economy for development. So bearing those things in mind, do you think that the world has the resources to make sure that all the inhabitants of the world 
including Africans and Chinese, uh, uh, reach a certain acceptable threshold of happiness? In other words, don't you think it's uh, inevitable and also to some extent necessary that uh, in the world as a whole, some people consume much, much less than others and uh, use much, much less resources than others and consequently uh, are much, much less happier than others. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's go. We'll take the three together, I think, yep. and then we'll... Yeah. There were two others. Hands up just here. Quick. <clears throat> David Harrington from the public. Thank you very much for your three uh, wonderful lectures. A question about, given that natural resources are diminishing and the population of the world is increasing, can you foresee some way into the future limiting the freedom of, uh, of having endless children? In other words, uh, a curb like they had in China some while ago. Thank you. And then straight behind you. I want to pick up something from your first lecture as well. Um, the suggestion that the current uh, crisis was not to be as severe as previous uh, crises. You said that we learned something from the Great Depression and we are not going to repeat our mistakes, but listening to your um, judgments about conventional economic wisdom and how it is applied, I wonder whether you are as confident as you were two days ago. Um, okay, first on the issue of, because the first two are somewhat related, the questions, uh, on environmental externalities, resources, uh, etc. You know, in order for us to be rich, do we need some other people to be poor, because there's just only so many resources to go round? Uh, I don't actually uh, believe that. I think if we look at natural resources, food, minerals, etc., we can you know, bring up to the standard of living of us today uh, the whole of the world. I think it's possible for a world of 10 billion people to have a standard of living uh, somewhat like that which we have in rich developed countries. I don't think it will necessarily happen, and I need, think it needs to be managed to happen. For instance, I think there is a huge externality of climate change, which unless we take forceful action driven by targets, uh, will produce uh, a, a you know, limits and, and problems. And that is why uh, I think it's absolutely right that we are setting ourselves in the UK the clear aim of getting our own carbon emissions down from 11 tonnes per capita in 1990 to 2.2 tonnes per capita in 2050. And I think the good news is that that is doable at a cost to measured economic growth which will be relatively small, though as I said earlier, even if it was three times bigger or four times bigger or five times bigger, I'd still do it, and a cost to measured economic growth which in terms of happiness, once we get there, we won't even notice uh, that we sacrificed it. So on the whole, I am an optimist. But I think the crucial issue is actually population stabilization. Um, I think it's doable with 10 billion, I'm not sure, I'm sure it's not doable with 30 billion, I don't know whether it's doable with 15 billion. I think there are some limits out there and there are some limits on the pace of growth. Uh, I therefore think, and I think essentially, you know, to step back to that great transformation, I do think that humankind is going through an extraordinary race of different uh, uh, forms of progress. Uh, we achieved uh, so much progress in technology that we have through vaccination and uh, other medical processes, 
the ability if people continue to have five or six children for them all to survive and for the population to multiply. But the very processes that gave us, the processes of technological progress that gave us those vaccinations and that medicine also gave us economic prosperity, which in almost all circumstances where it's allowed to, translates into choices that women make which stabilize the population. I think the race between these two developments is a very important race. Now, is it a race which is being run at one at the moment? Throughout much of the world, it is evolving in a perfectly good fashion and without any need, thank God, to limit people's choices. Because the fact is that although the Chinese have achieved population stabilization with the, uh, uh, the one-child policy, the evidence from Kerala state in India or from Iran is that if you basically do three things, uh, you educate women, you give them access and enough money to afford good, safe contraceptions, and you free them from the authority of religious authorities telling them it's a bad thing, achieve all of those three things, and birth rates fall typically pretty much to 2 or 1.95. Um, the problem is that some of those conditions are not in place. And I do think there is an issue in some countries as to Africa as to whether they are on a completely unsustainable path. The population of Niger in 1950 was 2 million. The population of Niger today is about 11 million. The United Nations median forecast suggests that the population of Niger in uh, 2050 uh, will be 50 million. Uh, I just cannot see any way that those people are going to uh, achieve an economic breakthrough to anything like our standard of living or even to maintain their standard of living uh, if that is, uh, occurs. And I do think that the way that purely voluntary population control was deliberately taken off the development agenda by the action of particular groups of people, the Catholic Church, uh, Islamic fundamentalism, and the uh, American evangelism at the Cairo conference in 1995 was a major tragedy. Now, going back to, however, are we going to avoid a Great Depression? Well, I think we are, because I do think we fundamentally, we're, we're fundamentally post-Keynesian. Um, you know, we do know that there are things that you can do either by fiscal stimulus or by monetary stimulus, including quantitative easing. And I do think that the idea that monetary policy runs out of ammunition at the zero bound is just not true. A determined fiscal authority and a monetary authority at, together acting can always at the limit in some way produce an increase in nominal GDP or avoid a catastrophic fall in nominal GDP. And I think uh, we will do so. And I think the world is well served by the fact that one of the uh, foremost uh, economic historians of the uh, Great Depression uh, was chairman of the Federal Reserve at the point uh, where this potential but not actual Great Depression broke out. So in that sense, I'm an optimist. We'll take one more round. Then we must have, there was a woman there, yeah. Yeah, with the pink. Yes. Hurry with the mic. Switch it on. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. Uh, you spoke about um, involuntary unemployment, um, and as I take it, if I've understood it, as being one uh, way which could lead to social unhappiness or lack of motivation. Um, and I was wondering if you could comment on 
the government's um, foreseen uh, unemployment benefits changes changes to unemployment um, benefit okay. and perhaps also on the child benefit because I think that's linked uh, Thank you. The guy just be below, be below you yep. uh, How's it going? You spoke about the trade-off between uh, efficiency and stability in financial market regulation yet um, the regulatory response in the EU is on the one hand effective macro prudential regulation of systemic risk but on the other hand is a fully integrated and fully efficient European capital market but if efficiency and stability aren't self-reinforcing uh, are you against the concept of a single European financial market? And one directly behind, yeah, you were patient there, thanks. I wondered what you thought about the um, usefulness of tools like ethical consumerism, ethical, uh, ethical, ethical consumerism. consumerism like fair trade and things like this, ethical finance, and also two other less well-known things which are starting to come up, which are um, I suppose moving to try to come away from the distinction you drew in your second lecture between um, free markets versus command economies by um, opening up ways in which regulation happens through, say, ethical cartels or e-democracy. Thanks. And take a last one here. You described the uh, rationale for why I, the average earner, would sign up for inequality as uh, this inequality increases me, the average earner's income, and therefore my happiness. But there is a second uh, explanation, the sort of eternal optimist. I sign up for it because I believe that I can shift myself along this to the higher, to the... I, and it, this ties into your idea in the first lecture of rapid wealth increase. Uh, the, the possible for rapid wealth. And it's, are your policy uh, suggestions, are they feasible in a world where I sign up to this inequality on that basis rather than the uh, average earner, um, my income rises? Thanks. Sorry, I, you have to restate that. I, I didn't yeah, quite get that. I'm sorry. sorry. Um, yeah. Essentially, there are two reasons why I might sign up to inequality, I see it. Your, your explanation was that as an average earner, my income will rise okay. with inequality. Yeah. But I might be signing up to it on the belief that... Yeah, I can you're aspiration. Yeah. You're going to become Wayne Rooney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I think... Well, I think that is a very uh, good point. And it, it does get to, you know, these, these tricky issues of, of, of what is fairness. And, you know, people have tried to get to grips with what is fair and what is just. And famously, you know, John Rawls had this idea of what decisions would you make uh, behind a veil of ignorance. So you're deciding, you know, what you want society to be before you sort of take potluck uh, of going into society. Now, I actually think most of us be behind a veil of ignorance would not pick to have an absolutely equal society, uh, even if we thought that that had no disadvantage to average earnings. Uh, because what we probably realize is, if it was the case that there was a random mix of capabilities, energies, inventiveness, and if we, in the random bit, got, were one of the people who was good at this, you know, energy or football or opera singing or invention, we would probably then be pretty frustrated by it then being an entirely equal society because we would feel we've got something special that it was reasonable that we were rewarded for. I think a, a person behind a Rawlsian veil of ignorance would probably select a society which had some dispersion of income, even if 
they didn't believe that that was going to increase average earnings. But I don't think, but they might not uh, do it as wide as the dispersion uh, we have, which, by the way, was Keynes's ultimate conclusion on it. So that's some of the things that I would think about in relation uh, to that issue. Uh, in involuntary unemployment, your question was, am I going to comment on the government's unemployment benefit and child's benefit plans? The answer to that is no, um, uh, because uh, I, I am a loyal public servant and I'm members of the press present. Um, I think the crucial point uh, I, I was uh, making uh, was that, and, and this is really crucial, the, the, the analysis of happiness, you know, it, it, it's obviously the case if people care about um, setbacks to, to current income and wealth, if, if, the, if the marginal if, uh, utility schedule is kinked, that they will delight, dislike unemployment because it involves a loss of income. But all the happiness research says that they dislike unemployment even more than that because they dislike it as a social event in itself, as an exclusion from the process of social involvement which work involves. And that does mean that when we think about optimal unemployment benefit, we are continually trying to work out what is it about that which will uh, either maximize employment or deal with the income level of people who are out of uh, employment. So those are the things uh, that uh, governments need to think about. Efficiency and stability, that's a very good point about the single European financial market. As long as we can combine it with stability, I think it will have some benefits, but I do think that we, um, we launched on it uh, without thinking about it uh, really at all. Um, uh, when I uh, took over at the FSA, uh, within day uh, eight, I think it was, uh, the single European market um, uh, came back to bite us on a massive scale because the single European market had been set up on the basis that uh, cross-border competition is a very good thing. Cross-border competition, people thought, well, it's a very good thing in restaurants, in skiing instructors, in retailers, so it must be a very good thing in retail banking. So they had established an absolute passporting right whereby a bank from one country of the European Union or the EEA could operate in another country as a branch because that was great for competition in this wonderful cross-border uh, banking environment. Uh, but nobody had thought about, well, if we do that, we need damn good mechanisms to make sure that the home country of a large bank, which is operating as a branch in another country, is well regulated and has the resources either in the bank itself or in the government to deal with failure. And uh, on the eighth day after I joined uh, the FSA, Landsbanki, Icelandic bank, uh, enjoying the benefits of passporting under the branch arrangements, uh, went uh, bankrupt. What that illustrates is that uh, banking is not as simple as uh, retailing or uh, you know, restaurants, etc. Uh, you really need to think these things through. And the phrase I used uh, in relation to that was, we needed either more Europe or less Europe. We either needed to get rid of uh, that single market in retail banking, or we needed to create some category of uh, pan-European uh, regulatory control to make sure that it was stable. Finally, the question about ethical consumerism, ethical finance, etc. It's a very wide question. Um, I think there is a role for individuals, and I think it's a very good role for individuals to care about what they are buying, to care about what the implications of that might be in terms of the externalities, social or environmental, that they are uh, uh, imposing. 
but I do not think that that will ever be sufficient to deal with uh, you know, all environmental uh, problems. I think there are some environmental problems or ethical problems that have to be dealt with through collective regulation or collective pricing in of externalities. So I think those, as it were, voluntary ethical initiatives, labeling responsibility, are part of a mobilization of opinion and valuable in and of themselves, but they are not sub substitutes for the necessary crunchy levers in uh, climate change of regulation and carbon pricing. My tiresome role in this event is to ensure that boring considerations like the fact that there is a dinner upstairs for the Robbins family which is getting cold um, are taken into account. Um, but I have a pleasant role as well as this tedious one which is to thank Adair for a terrific set of lectures and also uh, to tell you that the Robbins lectures are published. These will be in due course and since texts are already in pretty good shaped at least of the first two. Um, I think that will happen fairly soon. Uh, so we are thrilled by this year's uh, series, which has been well up to the standards of a long and distinguished tradition, uh, covering a terrific range of objectives. Uh, Adair, as you can see, is a mathematician, a philosopher. Uh, historian, and and statesman. historian and statesman. Historian and statesman. I, I knew there was uh, something else. In some else. degree. Uh, in <laughs> <laughs> but I also know that by ten past eight in the evening he likes a drink. So we're going to stop at that point. Thank you and thank you again. Okay.